Hi, welcome to another episode of Slightly Evolved. I am your host, Toby Fountain, and today I'm really pleased to be joined by Dr. Louisa Orsini, lecturer at the University of Birmingham in the UK. Hi, Louisa, how's it going? Hi, Toby. Nice to, to see you, and thanks for inviting me. I'm all right. <laughs> no problem. Good to have you on. Um, well, we'll start with the question we always start with. Can you tell us a bit about your first research paper? Oh, that research paper is long time ago, more <laughs> than I, I wish to, to remember. It was in 2001, and it was my, um, at, just after my master's studying the effect of marine currents on uh, population genetics of an endemic uh, seagrass species. So you were, you were straight into the genetics then during your master's? Yes, I started actually genetics with my master. Um, I graduated in environmental science and it has almost no component of genetics, but I got fascinated by it during my master. And so I went straight into population genetics back then, um, slowly becoming population genomics with time. And now I'm completely multi-omics. <laughs> There seems to be an ever-increasing number of omics that you can learn to get, get your handle on, I guess. Absolutely. So what were your main findings from this uh, first paper? So the first paper showed that actually um, the environment is a very strong component of local genetic diversity because it was affecting how much uh, migrants um, were exchanged among populations and also how much were established. So it was, if you want, my first discovery that there was a very tight connection between environment and genetics, mm. which we now know when is established, but it was 2001. So. <laughs> <laughs> Dark days back then. <laughs> yes. Okay, cool. And so that got you interested in how the environment and genetics kind of interact Yes, uh, environment was, as you know, because my major was in environmental science, was always one of my major interests. But then I, I found a way to, to link what was my second major interest in genetics. And since then, actually, even moving among different groups and uh, switching model system, the underlying topic has always been how the environment can affect um, genetics and evolution then of these natural populations. So that was one thing I wanted to ask you about because I, we've, we've talked about it before. There's often these different strategies when you move through your research career about whether to stick with one system or whether to move on to, to different systems. I'm, I'm a bit like you. I've moved between systems as I've sort of gone through. What do you think the advantages of doing that are? Um, I find it extremely fascinating uh, one thing is the underlying theme might be along the same line. And for me, has always been the link between evolution and the environment and how much the environment affects evolution in natural populations. However, working with different species open your eyes to different life strategies, uh, different systems, and different ways that natural populations can use to cope with changing in the environment. Hmm. Um, so in a way, I find it fascinating and it allows you also to interact with a much larger community rather than being stuck in your small group of people working on the same model system for 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> and still now, I think it was fruitful because even after so many years, I can have interaction with colleagues that I met 
throughout my career and exchange ideas. And, you know, perspectives change a lot when the when you use different model systems. So when you land in a new one, you can bring fresh ideas if you want. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what other systems have you worked on? Oh, let's see. Um, I started with marine systems. So first was seagrasses for my master. Then I dedicated my PhD to uncovering cryptic, cryptic genetic diversity in toxic algae. Okay. Um, yes. Um, and uh, I moved on for a year to a model system Drosophila, and that was mostly to become more familiar with um, population genetic theories. And after that, I moved to the University of Helsinki to work on metapopulation genetics with um, butterfly Melitea kingsia, uh, which I know uh, you're familiar with. Yes, one of my favorites. (laughs) Yes, it was quite uh, fascinating because the metapopulation model system is there. Um, and then at the same time, during during my postdoc, I was working on speciation in uh, uh, Madagascar dung beetles. Oh, cool! Yeah, that was uh, the other half of my uh, of my postdoc there. And finally, since two thousand and four, I started working with the model system Daphnia, and I'm still working with it. It's it's super interesting because from an outside point of view, that that seems like a pretty ideal way of doing it. I mean, going to Drosophila and really getting, you know, that's a really model system for getting used to the pure theory and then applying it to the more ecological system like um, like the glandular fertility, like the Melatea kinksia. And now going back to Daphnia, which is kind of a mix of, of both, right? Yeah, Daphnia is your, you know, I find Daphnia quite fascinating because it has all the ecologically relevant points so it's a keystone species is a natural species you find it almost everywhere is a good indicator of environmental change but at the same time is also a system that allows you to do the dream genetics if you want even though it has its own problems <laughs> like <laughs> sh- any non-model species i'm sure i'm looking actually looking forward to hearing about some of those problems because sometimes you you have a bit of um of jealousy, I think sometimes when you look at other people's systems, and and uh, I think as we'll talk about a bit more, Daphnia, you know, is a reason why it's such a popular model system. Yeah, it is. Um, in a way, you know, it it has the perks of the ecology and the perks of the genetics. Uh, however, it doesn't come without challenges. So, if you want, I can tell you some uh, some stories about it. Oh, definitely, yeah. Could you could you first talk about that because there might be some people who aren't so familiar with sure. with Daphnia. So could you talk a bit a bit about it first, and then we'll go into the challenges. Yes, absolutely. So Daphnia is a small crustacean. Uh, it's um, probably there are several species of Daphnia. The most common one in Europe, which I also work with, is Daphnia magnum, which can reach probably a millimeter. So you can see it with naked eye. You find it in almost every kind of still water, so um, uh, ponds, lakes. It doesn't live in running water, mm-hmm. but is um, commonly used also for tests in ecotoxicology, even to test the quality of your tap water. Mm. Um, is um, is as it has been studied for about twenty years because it's um, it's extremely uh, sensitive to the environment, and yet at the same time. 
it can adapt to almost anything, including heavy metals, including um, pesticides, including all sort of rubbish you can we can dump into water. And uh, you can find it in extremely um, high altitudes in these pristine lakes. And you can find it also in the pond next door. <laughs> wow. Um, yes. Um, so in that sense, it has a huge diversity. It is uh, both plastic and it can show genetic adaptation. So it is ideal for a geneticist. Um, as my, some people might know, but I just say it for um, clarity, it's a species that generally reproduce clonally when environmental conditions are favorable. Um, and once you sample it from the environment, you can keep it indefinitely in the lab. So it's fantastic. You can use the same genotype and expose it to different environmental conditions and study its gene evolution, its epigenetics, and so on and so forth. At the same time, it retains high genetic diversity because in nature, it repro- the, this life cycle switches to sexual reproduction at least once a year or when environmental conditions become harsh for the animals. At the end point of this uh, sexual reproduction is dormant embryos. And this is where the fascinating part comes in, because these dormant embryos are encased in a chitin case that protects them from the environment. And they tend to sink at the bottom of lakes and they sit dormant until new and favorable environmental conditions allow them to wake up again. It's amazing. It's so amazing. Cool. It's, um, yeah, uh, it's Jurassic Park in modern times. <laughs> <laughs> And the, the cool thing is many of these um, dormant embryos uh, wake up again in the new growing season. So they contribute to fuel genetic diversity and to maintain these extremely high genetic diversity in natural populations. But then they, many of them, they never have a chance to hatch, actually, because there are so many. And they become buried in the sediment. So you as a scientist can go out in the field, sample these uh, sediment with, um, you know, um, paleolimnological um, um, methods. And then what you do is to date it and sieve it and you you find back these small resting eggs you can identify by eye and then you hatch them. So you have in the lab these old grannies of 90, 100 years as well as the modern descendant And then you can think about all the possible uh, fantastic experiments you can do by contrasting modern and historical populations. You can expose them to different environmental conditions and study how they evolved. Essentially, you you can create um, an evolutionary time machine and study it. Wow. And so, like, for example, if you've had a period of recent human-driven change, like the polluting of some waters, you can take animals before and after and sort of compare them that's exactly the point so my research now focuses mostly on the last century for which humans have mostly impacted the environment and you can actually go and sample populations predating any sort of uh, pollution and then you can ask how did they evolve in response to these human impacts that's that's amazing because i mean a lot of 
in other systems, a lot of that, you're just trying to infer the changes that you that have gone on from the sort of patterns of genetic diversity, right? That's exactly right. Yeah. Wow. And this is this is what's been termed resurrection ecology. Means, yeah. So the, the, in, the innovation is that it, resurrection ecology is has been out there for a good 15, 20 years. And mostly it has been used to study uh, life history trade changes. But now with the multiomics development, we can apply also transcriptomics, genomics, epigenomics, metabolomics, and <laughs> lipidomics. And then you can study everything from, from allele to molecule to uh, metabolite changes in response to environmental change. Wow. And so how long has these, this project been going on for that you've been working on? Um, so the evolutionary time machine, as I call it, started with me joining the faculty here in Birmingham in June 2013. Um, I started doing my, my postdoc in the University of Leuven before coming here in Belgium. I started looking at genomics applied to natural populations and now I'm implementing uh, full-time this multi-omic approach to um, um, resurrection ecology. Cool. Have, has there been any uh, outcomes so far? Um, yeah, we have a number of publications um, that came out since 2008. Uh, we have studied um, genome evolution of, um, in response to temperature changes. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have studied um, spatial um, uh, versus temporal evolution of um, life history traits and genomes. And now uh, the, the project I started here, which I hope will give some nice results, um, uh, integrates all of these. And so I have sampled, uh, for now, one well-characterized lake and we have studied uh, fitness changes in response to multiple stressors, including climate change, um, um, pesticide pollution, and whatnot. And then we are now we have sequenced the genome of these animals, and the intention is understanding what is the genetic underpinning of fitness response. Mm-hmm. And then the idea is to create an integrative approach that goes from, you know, changing in trade that could be size or population growth um, and explain that with genetic changes um, mediated by transcriptomics or epigenomic responses. And obviously this doesn't happen overnight, (laughs) uh, but we are making good progress. We have the first results. A couple of publications have already came out. Um, and the idea is at some point we can pull everything together and give, like, explain how a natural population can evolve over time using what kind of um, mechanisms and using what, what actually selection targets. And it seems to be the case that it's not a single gene to be the target of selection, but is multiple genes uh, working in concert um, and even uh, working in a sort of network. You can think about the same network that Google uses to predict um, your liking of a specific product. Hmm. And so natural populations do the same. 
um, multiple genes interact, they are part of a similar pathway or a network of genes, and they work as module. And so um, evolution impacts the structure sometimes of these networks and allows these animals to adjust to big or small changes by slightly changing the structure of these networks. And that makes them extremely powerful because they can respond quickly and they can respond very efficiently. But does this also mean they respond in like different ways? Could it be that, because if it's a network, you, there are several different ways to get the same result, right? That's exactly right. So it's not, there is not only one way to respond. And as you know, many fitness traits are complex. So you don't expect one gene, one trait correlation. The problem is that so far has been extremely difficult to understand what the end point that could be survival or it could be reproduction. How is this regulated at molecular level? And our results seems to indicate that is a much complex structure and that selection doesn't operate at gene level, at least in this species, but seems to work at much higher hierarchical level. So this is super interesting. Uh, For people who aren't working on sort of Daphnia, is it possible to take this approach in other organisms or does it really require this kind of such a well-characterized system to be working at all these different omic levels? Let's put it this way. If you want to understand from A to Z how evolution operates, you might need a multi, um, multi-omic approach. Mm. However, uh, working with a single omics or with a couple of omics, which nowadays is possible, and I'm talking about, for example, genomics and transcriptomics, which is now enabled for majority of species, you can understand quite a lot already. That's good to know. It's reassuring to people who are, who are just dealing with, with, with genomics or transcriptomics. Yeah, absolutely. It is possible. I mean, uh, one of our recent publications in molecular ecology is um, how you can um, basically how these organisms respond to very sudden environmental change. We study actually their response within few hours from exposure to stress. And then we study few hours. Yeah, it's enough for them to respond. (laughs) Wow. And then in few hours, they can actually alter their gene expression. If you, however, look just at differential expression, you only come up with a handful of genes and the usual suspects, right? Mm -hmm. However, if you um, capitalize on the correlative network, co-expression networks, then you identify a number of genes that co-regulate and so they change in response to that environmental stimuli. And then you see actually how this response is coordinated for the organism to adjust very quickly within a few hours. Now from there, we are trying to to see how the transcriptomic response drives the metabolic response in this organism. So can we actually see the same coordinated response also at metabolite level? Mm. And do we see the same kind of complexity uh, working? So if you want, it's like looking at a Lego. So you can change structure by simply moving a node, 
but that changes extremely your capacity to respond to big changes. Like your research is spanning all of these different omics. Is it? Um, you must have a lot of like uh, collaboration with others. Definitely. I mean, this will never happen uh, with one scientist. So this is where modern biology, if you want, kicks in. You can never work in isolation. You shouldn't. And for all of this to happen, you need uh, scientists with different expertise. Not only in the life science, you need very good biostatisticians. You need computer scientists. And everybody is a key to the, the overall understanding of the mechanisms and processes. So how did you go around sort of setting this up? Was it was this like a larger project that was already established? Or is this something that you sort of formed uh, when you started it? So I during my career, I, I worked around, I worked in several labs. And, and so I, I established my networks of collaborators. And um, the Daphnia Genomic Consortium is also a community. And so... Um, by going to conferences and working together, you establish a very good relationship with your colleagues. Mm. And then um, also locally here at the University of Birmingham, there has been quite some understanding that the future is in computational biology and system biology. And so slowly I've built this network of collaborators and we applied for a large grant funded by the Environmental Council here in the UK. And now we are working towards this big goal. Um, so I put in the ideas and I had quite uh, some support from my colleagues from different fields of science. And we are working together like a good, well, well-oiled <laughs> machine. You need that. Um, but that means also for you leading this kind of research, you need to speak that language. Is that challenging? Because when people have different backgrounds, uh, often there is a different language. <laughs> Absolutely. And you know what? I, I remember when I started this, I decided to, to go for a year to the U.S. in, um, um, in a bioinformatics lab. It was mm -hmm. bioinformatics and genomics. And I, I decided to do this because I needed to learn how to communicate with bioinformaticians. Mm -hmm. And so I went there. My first experience when I sat in a meeting, I had absolutely no idea what they were talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, dear. <laughs> but then slowly you, you study, you learn, you communicate with them, and then you, you have a, an understanding of what you're talking. Nowadays, I cannot say, ever will say that I'm a biostatistician or bioinformatician, but I can speak. I can understand the language, I can communicate with them. And I think that's the key when you are leading a very complex research line and you need uh, input from different people, you need to speak their language. I think that's a fantastic point. Yeah, and it's absolutely true that a computer scientist has no idea of the biology that is driving your question. It can analyze data, but without the right guidance, it might never help you in the way you want. Hmm. So it's a give and take. They will learn a bit from you. You will learn from them. But essentially, you need to, to understand their language in order to be able to ask them to do certain analysis for you. 
Okay, well, now I think I have to hear some of these challenging stories of Daphne to make me feel a bit better that, I, that sure. I'm not working on them. <laughs> Go for it. So what, what have been some of the big challenges working with Daphne so far? One of the biggest challenge, well, you know, um, there are challenges at different levels. Mm -hmm. um, in on one, sen uh, one hand, for example, when you want to uh, resurrect animals and you would like to go back several hundred years, um, it depends very much on the preservation state of the sediment you're working with. Mm -hmm. And in some occasions, you are successful in resurrecting old grannies of several hundred years. <laughs> in some cases, even 20 years becomes a challenge. Okay. And so that's one, one challenge. The other uh, we encountered um, at a molecular level. So I can tell you several stories. Like for any non-model organism that you are trying to transition into multiomics, there is a number of challenges, practical. Um, like can you extract enough material to sequence the entire metabolome? Or can you actually use the same uh, tissue to extract transcriptomic and metabolomic profiles. Mm -hmm. All of these requires optimization after optimization after <laughs> optimization. <laughs> right. Yes. And in some cases, now techniques are going uh, forward and very quickly. And so nowadays, we are able to sequence genome from a single dormant egg. Wow. Yes. Um, and this was a huge breakthrough for us. But if you want to use, until five years ago, or even three years ago, I had to grow gigantic cultures of Daphnia to extract enough tissue to sequence one genome. Right. Yeah, yet it's possible because this organism is clonal, so I cannot really complain. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and the other big challenge is when you go and study complexity and multiomics and try to link this to fitness and life history traits, it's not easy. And there is not one way forward. And actually, it is quite computationally challenging. And this is where our colleagues, um, biostatistician, bioinformatician, and computer scientists come in handy and help us, um, like disentangling this complexity. And that's where our biggest challenge lays nowadays. Okay, just processing this, this type of data. Yeah. Can you imagine gigantic terabytes of data? <laughs> <laughs> Pull them all together and link one trait, like, for example, think about uh, the antenna size or how many offspring are there, and just to pinpoint that to one process, possibly a handful of them. Yeah. It's, I, I try and describe the type of data we have sometimes to, to my friends and family who aren't in science and just the, the literal size of the data. Yeah. It's, uh, it's pretty crazy. I, I was looking at actually, there was this, um, this satellite that's been orbiting Saturn. I've forgotten what the name of it is. But there was an article in the BBC about it. It's been going for over 11 years, but it sent, I think, 650 gigabytes of data. <laughs> And that's not even, uh, <laughs> that, no, that seems small compared to some of the genomes we have. And this is a, you know, a big probe that's been taking pictures of Saturn for ages. It's absolutely crazy how much data an organism takes up. <laughs> oh, yes, absolutely. And if you want to 
understand natural diversity, you are sampling many populations, many individuals from each population. So the the number of data increases exponentially. Yeah. It becomes a practical problem just about where to store it. And then we have those issues trying to find places to store the data and then actually back up the data as well. Yes, and this is one of the modern challenges. It has become possible to produce so many data and we don't have enough servers to store them. Sequencing really isn't the, isn't holding anyone back anymore. It's, uh, it's these other practical challenges. It is, to be honest. It's analytical, it's conceptual, and sometimes it's the cost. But I have to say it has gone down so much that nowadays almost all labs are able to, to do sequencing. Yeah, I was looking at this graph the other day, the famous graph showing how the sequencing costs have changed. And it's gone from a genome costing $100 million in 2001 to around $1,000 now. Correct, yeah. It's, which is pretty, it's pretty crazy. Yeah, now that we talk about this, one of the challenges, this is for people that envy our system. Okay. <laughs> no, that is not all beautiful and all easy. You're not just um, trying to scare people away from you. No, not trying to. <laughs> it's a fascinating model, but it has its drawbacks. And one of them, for example, is the genome is so complex and compact that sometimes we struggle even to apply, you know, um, an enzymatic digestion to have the genome fragmented. Oh, really? Right. So, and think that a Daphne genome, which is 250 mega, uh, can have more than 30,000 genes. Wow. Okay. And so some of gene these. rich. Are, yeah, it's extremely rich. And we think that most of these are copy numbers and it uses it as a way of coping with rapid changes. Mm. However, it imposes some practical issues when you apply established protocols. How repetitive is the genome sequence? Um, the, there is no genome duplication, but there is an extremely high percentage of duplicated genes. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. And this, yeah, like you said, this works into the kind of potential redundancy yes. in the networks. Huh. Absolutely. Fascinating. Yes. You can use pseudogenes and then you can actually retain a function and those your gene expression uh, only working on epigenetic signal, for example. So one question I have to ask you, sort of, I don't know if there's a, an answer to this, but is there an upper limit for how long the eggs can be dormant for? Um, well, I answer you with what we have as data. The oldest egg we managed to resurrect is 750 years old. <sighs> wow. Um, if you want to work with populations, it becomes more challenging, though. Okay. Because the more deep the layers of the sediment, the more, um, you know, uh, challenging it becomes to wake them up because of a series of reasons. Some are practical, like the sediment has rotten the egg, essentially. Mm. Um, but we are also trying to understand actually how much you, this, this dormant embryos can stay dormant. Uh, we are studying the dormancy mechanism. And so there is a PhD student in, in my group I co-supervise that which the topic is essentially what makes them go to sleep and what wakes them up. 
And so it's not only stimuli, but is um, what mechanisms are involved in this dormancy. Initially, we thought that, you know, they just stop division and they go to sleep. But then we have discovered that in the dormancy transition phase, they still duplicate and we have hundreds of cells. So it's a very complex machinery that determines when all these cells go to sleep. Hmm. And now it's interesting to understand how do they, they wake up and they seem to have a minimum period before they are able to wake up. Okay. So it's a molecular mechanism. is not only um, a, uh, an environmental or um, um, like a temperature stimuli okay. as was hypothesized so far. Right, right. So there's some molecular machinery that has to work to, to sort of resuscitate the eggs. Yes. Oh, okay, yes. that's super interesting. So yeah, in my, my head, I saw it just as an environmental cue that would just trigger, yeah. you know, sort of cascade that would wake them up. But Yeah, it's not that simple. Even oh. in this simple organism, it's not that simple. <laughs> wow. Well, I guess it makes sense in some ways it wouldn't be so easy to do. That's hmm. true, because they have to defend themselves in nature. But this will, will probably reveal... Also, if there is an upper limit, so when uh, you can actually uh, resurrect them and how far back you can go. But it seems from our data that you can go quite far back still. Can you induce them to go into hibernation yourself? Yes, you can. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, so if you use um, crowding, for example, or shortage of resources, they tend to do that. There is one thing that I'm also working on, mm -hmm. uh, which is a more applied aspect of science. And because I, I think as a scientist, you should not be in your uh, ivory tower and you <laughs> try to do something for society. So return what society gives you. Mm -hmm. And so I'm trying to study how... I can use my fantastic dapnea <laughs> to <laughs> clean up actually um, um, uh, um, sewage water or other contaminated water. So in, in, in our department, there is um, Professor Coburn, which I collaborate with a lot, that is more trying to, to understand if we can use dapnea to diagnose pollution. Hmm. And what I'm working on is trying to use Daphnia to clean up the water. Because if we can do that in alternative to chemical treatment, it will be cheap, it will be non-polluting. And if you can think of this, you can apply it in countries, in less developed countries like India, China, Africa, where water pollution is a big issue. Um, I have some preliminary results that actually demonstrate Daphnia can clean sewage within three weeks. Wow. Even less if you combine it with action of algae. And uh, this is a research I'm trying to refine now. And I would like to convince <laughs> the water industry that there is an alternative way of, to their way of doing it. Wow. So these are these Daphnia you're using. That are they just from natural populations, or are they being they selected for? They're just wow. Okay, wild Daphnia. They are wild Daphnia, but uh, I select them from a wild range of diversity. And the future might be also that you you're able 
to provide a service to industry that produces different kind of polluted water. You screen Daphnia, you can even generate um, um, genetically engineered Daphnia mm. that is super efficient in cleaning targeted type of water, but then you can do it efficiently, quickly, and clean. <laughs> I mean, that sounds absolutely incredible. Yeah, I couldn't believe myself. <laughs> when I put them in pure raw sewage and they not only survived, they cleaned it. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Don't say too loud. Otherwise, somebody can steal the idea. <laughs> yeah, no, no, of course. Um, so what would the next step be? I mean, you've treated them in the lab. Is there, Would the next step be able to take it into a real sort of life scenario? Or? Yeah, the idea is now to test how a combination of microorganisms can improve this um, uh, cleaning process. So can can we actually speed it up to the point that makes industry, um, you know, interested because they want something quick and they want yeah. something fast. Right. Um, and the other, the next step is uh, applying it in, um, in the field. Mm -hmm. And so actually uh, as a proof of concept, using even a small industry, local industry and and show everybody that it actually works i think i think that's uh, one of the most amazing things i've heard recently it sounds <laughs> like a great a great idea yeah uh, yeah i mean it's a fantastic way of, of like you said taking science and and really applying it in a positive and constructive way if it works i mean if it works <laughs> yes but i mean it's early days i don't want to say too much um it seems very promising okay Cool. Um, and if you think these animals survive nearly anywhere, why not? Yeah. yeah, exactly. How about we talk about what your interests are outside of research as well? Outside of research, okay. Um, well, I like uh, traveling a lot. Mm -hmm. um, so I travel for work, uh, but I also enjoy traveling and visiting new places. And my goal is visit a new place at least once a year. And then okay. get acquainted with local people, understand the culture, eat what they eat, drink what they drink, and talk to them. Mm -hmm. So um, open your horizons, if you want, um, to different cultures and different people. Um, I like um, reading a good book and being lazy, <laughs> like everybody <laughs> else. Um, What's the last book you uh, read or what are you reading now? I was reading John Grisham, one of the, uh, the first books he produced, but it has been reprinted uh, about a history of um, black and white in old Mississippi. This oh, is wow. quite an interesting book and how people perceive human rights back then. Um, for, well, considering what's happening in the world, I found it quite actual. <laughs> okay. <Yeah. laughs> wow. That's good. I, I'm I'm always needing uh, book recommendations. I, I didn't, I stopped reading for a long, long time. But I've been trying desperately to get to get back into it, and uh, it's it's kind of hard not knowing where to what books to where to find books or what books to read if you're not so used to it. Yeah, um, I have to say I'm I used to be quite um, angry reader, and when I was younger, I managed to read much more. And nowadays, my long days make it so more difficult to do it. Yeah. But um, on holidays, for example, or when I have time, I like doing that. 
And the other thing I try to do is to keep healthy and train as much as I can. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so to um, to have a healthy lifestyle and go um, like challenge myself with um, uh, things like uh, marathon training or oh, wow. support um, science for cancer research um, by you know doing a marathon of the 5k or 10k. Um, it's it really sometimes clashes with my um, work, but I try to do it as much as I can. I was going to ask uh, again about your, the traveling thing because one thing I've noticed because you, you've moved around quite a lot. Yeah. Uh, with where you've worked, was that always like a conscious thing that you wanted to? Because li- I mean, there's one thing: there's traveling, visiting places. But I mean, when you live somewhere for a year or a couple of years, then you really kind of take in the yeah. culture, right? Was that something you always wanted to do? Um, I didn't know if I wanted to do that, you know. When mm. I uh, I did my um, my studies in my country, in Italy, and then I moved and um, I started enjoying, you know, living in a different country, um, being exposed to different cultures because the scientific community is extremely international. Mm-hmm. And so you understand so much more and you become much more aware of other people, uh, culture and limitations or di- diversity. Um, and then I changed every two or three years also because that's how the scientific life works. Um, and then at some point I decided, okay, it's time for me to settle down and try to develop a much longer program. Mm-hmm. Because as you know, when you move a lot, it's fascinating and stimulating but it's also energy consuming because every time you have to move and settle down there's quite a lot of energy and then also your private life and your social life are affected and so on and so forth but i have to say i would do it over again it it um it was very uh educative and enriching yeah i would agree i I think it's uh it's it's definitely one of the benefits of, of research career early on that you can you can do live in a different country for a couple of years and without having just completely uproot your whole life knowing you know knowing you've got a few years and then you can move on somewhere else or, um, but yeah after a while I think it, I think most people want to want to sort of find somewhere to stay settle down yeah also because your private life otherwise is zero <laughs> <laughs> uh, you, if you have family if you have partner if you have kids you cannot eradicate them every two years <laughs> it's, it's not fair no no it's difficult well thank you for joining louise it's been great talking to you no it was uh, it was fun talking about science and life with you yeah um can people uh read more about your research online uh, yes, I, I do actually have a web page I can share with you if you want to include it in the podcast. I can put the link to it in the description of the podcast and then direct people there. Yes, absolutely. And there is also a web page of the university, but it's much more structured at the university once. So if you want more details or information, is on my personal web page. Cool. Well, thanks for joining us, Louisa. Thank you so much, Toby. It was fun to talk to you. Yeah, and thank you all for listening. Uh, as always, you can follow us on Twitter at Slightly Evolved Pod. You can get in contact on our email address, slightlyevolvedpod at gmail.com, and you can also get in contact on our Facebook group. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Bye.